Jonathan with us. He has um, been around here for quite some time in the area. He's an um, uh, elder at the Grace Church in Durango. Gospel Church. Gospel Church. Sorry. Uh, Gospel Church in Durango. And um, he's getting ready to, to, to jump out in faith and do something that uh, um, would be honoring to God and, and, and something that, that all of us can relate to in our time. So, Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, it's an uh, honor to be here this morning. Uh, like he said, my name is Jonathan, Jonathan Helvoit. I'm a pastor at Gospel Church Durango, and I'm also leading a uh, team to plant a new church, to start a new church in the Denver area next year. Uh, so uh, as such, we're, we're looking to partner with other churches that are already in existence. Um, and I don't know if you know this, you, you might, but there's a pastor's collective that meets every quarter or so that Colby comes and uh and joins in we as pastors encourage one another and one of the things that we like to do as a collective is to plant churches but it's been a long time uh since we've done so so when I at the last meeting I made a presentation to the to the collective that we were going to go plant a church and it was like chum in the water every all the all the pastors were like oh you you got to come preach at our church and you got to come preach at our church and and Colby jumped in first, actually, as you're, I'm sure, not surprised. And so uh, super helpful and invited me to preach here this morning uh, and present the vision to you uh, and to your team. And, and also, uh, but more importantly, this right here is a sacred place. This is where the word of God uh, is preached. And so my intention this morning is to preach from the word of God, uh, that it might be edifying to your soul's. Uh, so while I'm here to talk to you about church planting, I'm also primarily here to preach the word of God to you. So let's dig in the word and see it minister to our hearts this morning, shall we? So let me pray uh, to open up this sermon and, and we'll begin. Father, it is such a pleasure to be in your word. Uh, it is such a pleasure to have your word here with us that you saw fit to speak to your people and to give us an anchor for our souls, and to know you. And so, God, would you speak through your word this morning? Uh, would my words not be my own, but yours, uh, that people would uh, be ministered to by your spirit in person here this morning. And we ask for wisdom and discernment and prophetic words this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... If you want to turn in your Bibles now uh, to a familiar passage, Matthew chapter 28. It's the, la it's the first book of the New Testament, the last chapter of that book. Matthew chapter 28. And we'll start in verse 18. Uh, and as we turn there, uh, as you know, it's Missions Month here at First Baptist uh, and so it's important for us to ask and to have real clear clarity, what is missions, right? Missions is an interesting term. If you were to go to a social club or you were to go to a group of people or go to your work and ask, like, what's the, uh, what do you think about missions? That word is, could potentially be foreign to them, or you could think of it as mission impossible, right? Missions is, is some sort of, sort of goal that you're after and oftentimes if there's a mission in a movie or something like that it's a high stakes mission involving guns and 
and so on and so. But it means something different to us, right, as Christians. But perhaps in this room even, there's different understandings of what missions even is. And hopefully as, uh, you know, I'm coming here having been faithfully serving at another church, perhaps you've been uh, shepherded well in this. So Lord willing, this will all be repetitive to you. Uh, nevertheless, it's good, and the Lord saw fit to talk to you about missions this morning. So we've all likely heard of missions, but it's possible that we all have different ideas of missions. But if we're to be on the same mission, it's good for us to all know what that mission is and to be really clear on that. So I want to kind of bring us into clarity this morning. Uh, we've all, just to belabor the point a bit, we've all likely heard of mission trips, you know, of missionaries. There's things on these walls. Um, so when I use the term missions, what pops into your head? Perhaps you're thinking of seaplanes smuggling Bibles into hostile villages in Africa, or perhaps youth teams building houses in Guatemala. Maybe so. And these are good things. Are you doing this, and is this what the Lord requires of you? And maybe you think, I'm a missionary to my own town. I'm a missionary to Bayfield. But then you ask yourself, when is the last time I've explicitly shared the gospel with my coworker or someone down the street? Now is actually a really good time to ask yourself this question. Maybe the answer is troubling, maybe not. What's certainly true in all of this is that sometime in your life, someone is going to ask you to support a missionary effort with your resources. I'm going to ask you to do that today. Uh, but since you'll likely be asked by many people for support for a variety of different mission efforts, which one or which ones are the best to put your family's resources behind, your prayer, your time, your resources, your efforts? What is, which one is the best? Is it, is it the first one to ask, right? Is it the friend that came to your wedding? Does he get support over the guy you once knew in high school? What if your pal that came to your wedding is foolish and he has a worthless mission planned and the high school guy has his ducks in a row and how can he even know? And is there even such a thing as a foolish, worthless Christian mission? Could you even dare to think that? Aren't any well-intentioned efforts made by Christians, isn't that just what missions is? And therefore, aren't they worthy of respect? Are any better than another? These are, these are difficult questions because after all, in these, there's well-intentioned things behind them. And we're called by God to minister to the orphan and the widow, aren't we? We're, we're called to serve the poor. We're, we're called to do all these things as Christians, and these things ought to be a part of our regular life. So when we're thinking of missions, is that what's entailed, or is it something else? There's an economist named Thomas Sowell who said, if there's any lesson in the history of ideas, it is that good intentions tell you nothing about the actual consequences. So have you heard of missions going bad? Have you heard of a team of youths going into a third world town to build houses for a week, and those houses last for a few years, but then they begin to fall apart, and the people are now worse off than before, the local economy is affected, and dilapidation has spread to the town. And now the town doesn't look too kindly on Christians coming in. All the while, the high schoolers who went feel quite good about what they've accomplished, right? And the missionary work is made more difficult for years to come in this place. Isn't that, is that good? I myself, as a teen, 
personally started a riot in Mexico involving a tenth of the city's population that garnered the attention of the Mexican military, all at an event meant to spread the gospel through a puppet show. <laughs> we can talk more about that later. I've grown, grown since. Uh, so was it worth it? Is this what Jesus had in mind? These are just a couple of examples, but we can see what can come out of good intentioned ideas. So we need to have our ducks in a row. We need to understand what missions ought to be, and we ought to know how this ought to be done well. We want to know exactly what our mission is, how it's best carried out, what it involves, and what the components are that are required of us. So do we have this information? Yes, we do. Jesus gave it to us in what is known as the Great Commission. The Great Commission, uh, it's written on... Uh, I saw missions envelopes and stuff, the, the reference, Matthew 28, as you were turning there, I'm sure you knew, ah, this morning we're going to hear about the Great Commission. Uh, but the Great Commission is not simply go and preach the gospel. Did you know that? It's not simply go help the poor. These are good things to do. But we often reduce the Great Commission to these things, and for a number of reasons. So you have to ask yourself, is this what you think? When you think, if somebody were to ask you, what is the Great Commission? what would you say? Have you reduced it? And if not, if, you're, if you know the Great Commission and you know it well, are you actually fulfilling it? Well, the good news is we're going to talk about this together today as we look in God's Word. So Matthew chapter 28, uh, or Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And before we do, I want to I tell you something that might uh, surprise you. But I'm going to summarize this here and that Jesus in the Great Commission is telling the apostles to go and to plant and to grow and to nourish local churches. And what this means is that while you can fulfill elements of the Great Commission in other spheres and you can fulfill Christian obedience in other spheres like uh, helping orphans and widows in their distress, like feeding the hungry, the least of these, as you did unto them, so you do unto Jesus Christ as you are living that Christianly, right? If you look at hospitals, the biggest hospitals in the biggest cities, they all have words like Presbyterian or Methodist on them because Christians have brought these about, right? This is, this is good Christian work. Nevertheless, Jesus in the Great Commission, this mission that we've been sent on is specific and different uh, and will help in the doing of those things, right? There are ways to fulfill the elements of Great Commission in other spheres, like teaching your children or baptizing e Ethiopian eunuchs, right, like Philip did. Rightly ordered obedience to the Great Commission still necessitates the need for church planting. And this is why uh, I'm here this morning and why it was like chum in the waters for, that, uh, for the uh, pastor's collective, because planting churches is at the root here of the Great Commission. So it's good for us to be united in missions and push, us, push each other into obedience in these things. And if you have doubts on this, hold on with me and let's see if the scriptures actually teach this. So let's read. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, so let's break this down little by little. All authority has been given to Jesus. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore. Go, therefore. And that therefore means that what is said prior is the grounds on which all will be laid. Right? So when he says, go, therefore, he's saying, in light of this, do this. And so what is all this in light of? All of this in, is in light of the basis that all authority in heaven and on earth is Jesus's. It belongs to Jesus and that it was given to him. And we know this. We saw this coming. We saw the authority of Jesus coming. If we read in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. You know who the Son of Man is. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here Daniel tells us that the Ancient of Days, God the Father, will give to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, dominion, glory, and a kingdom with the intent and result that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Paul lays this out specifically in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. You can turn there if you'd like. Ephesians chapter 1. Keep your finger in Matthew 28. Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. It says, For this reason, this is Paul speaking, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what happened here? When God raised Jesus from the dead, he set him at his right hand in total authority and gave him to the church. That's what happened. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he was given a seat far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And that's what our passage says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Now this might sound interesting to you. Uh, perhaps you're thinking, well, Jesus made everything. Jesus is God. Of course, he's had all authority this whole time. And yet there's an element here where Jesus Christ is given authority at his resurrection. Now walk with me in this. This might seem odd to you, but let's, let's turn to Psalm 82 for a moment. And I don't want us to get hung up here, but we, we need to see what the scripture is teaching as a whole here. Psalm chapter 82. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And what does he say here in this divine council? He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Right? These are things that we're called to. Things on the wall. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the, worth of the earth are shaken. 
I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. We see here that God in his divine authority appointed a divine council, right? It says it takes its place in the divine council, made up of these spirit beings that the psalmist calls lowercase g gods. Right? And you see these throughout the scriptures called angels, demons, principalities, rulers, powers, elsewhere in scripture. And you can see that these gods, ref- you can see these gods referenced throughout the Old Testament specifically. And that's lower G God. There is no God but Yahweh. It seems these spirits were appointed judges, right? It says, how long will you judge unjustly? He's speaking to these gods. And he's saying, how long will you judge unjustly? And these judges, he appointed over the nations, the rulers and authorities. And since they acted wickedly, the psalmist tells us that they will die like men, and so they will. And the psalm ends by saying, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And so uh, these spirits were given authority over the nations, and they were acting wickedly, and they were doing poorly. And so God is saying, Your judgment is coming and God is going to inherit the nations. These spirits were placed above nations for a time, but for, da- but for David, there's a time coming when this will no longer be the case. And this makes sense of Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, doesn't it? Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness, and he took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. How could he offer what wasn't his? Where is the temptation in that? He was offering the kingdoms of the world without the cross, without the suffering, without the death. But he'd have to sell his soul, wouldn't he? He'd have to fall down and worship Satan. But Jesus refuses to worship Satan, praise the Lord. And he goes to the cross and is raised from the dead and is seated in the heavenly places to rule over all things. And so we get to our passage that says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. He's saying that the Daniel prophecy is being fulfilled. The Son of Man is here and has been given the nations, and this dominion was given to him with the intent and result that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And this is what we pray for when we pray that God's kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven, a world rightly ordered in total subjection to King Jesus every knee bowed and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is their master, and Jesus is worthy of this. And if you know Jesus, if you've met Jesus, this should delight you, that such a king would get all the homage of the nations. And perhaps you don't know the Lord. And perhaps the idea of serving and bowing to a king is upsetting to you, but I would exhort you to consider your current master and whether he or she is capable of ruling the world, the heavens, and ruling it with your good as a guarantee. And maybe that God is you, and maybe that God is something else in your life. But whatever you're serving, you have to ask, does this God have all rule and authority and have your good as a guarantee? And if not, I would urge you to bow your knee to a different God. So, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Go, therefore, in light of this fact that Jesus Christ has all authority, 
what does Jesus command us to do? Well, his command is actually related to his authority. Right? He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So in light of this, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ has all authority, we are told to go make disciples, go make people who serve and learn from Jesus, to fish for men, to gather the nations for Jesus who has inherited them, to watch all things rightly fall under subjection to him who has rightful authority. Hebrews 2 really sums this up for us really, really well. Hebrews 2, 2, chapter 5, or chapter 2, verse 5 through 10, says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Ah, talked about that recently. Of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man... We know who the Son of Man is, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything into subjection under his feet. In subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. What is outside of his control? Nothing. At present, we do not yet see everything subjection in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So all things have been put in subjection to Jesus, and yet at present we don't see it. And this is out of order. This is, this is not how it ought to be. And so like the Lackland imposter Prince John ruling Nottingham, ruling Nottingham while King Richard was a rightful and reigning king, The people of Nottingham looked on as people bowed their knee before an imposter. So Prince John is there and he's saying, I'm king. He's not really king, but he's saying, I'm king. And the real King King Richard is not having the knees bowed to him. Prince John is having the knees wrongly bowed to him. This is an imposter situation. Everything is still needing to be set right and homage given to whom homage was due. So while King Jesus is the reigning king, we see knees bowed falsely to people who aren't even in authority. And Jesus tells us to go make disciples of all ethnos, of all nations. He actually has all authority, so let's get everything straightened out. That's our job as Christians, is to get everything straightened out. And how do we do this? Well, how? We go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. That's how we do it. And you want to see here that this isn't a grab bag of things, right? It's not like, okay, what are the things I'm, I'm about to leave, so what are a few things that I need to tell you? Okay, so I need you to go out, um, and then I need you to make disciples, and then I need you to teach them things, and I need you to baptize them. Do all those things. Just make sure you do all those things. These aren't a grab bag of things. Jesus is actually giving one command, and the manner in which we accomplish this one command, that's what he's doing. So he's giving one command, and then how we do it. This is easy to tell with careful inspection and very easy to see actually in the Greek. It's very easy to see also in the English, but the Greek helps us out a little bit. In the Greek and effectively in the English, the, in the, English, the main verb and the fundamental command is very clearly make disciples. That's what we're told to do. That's the main thing. So all these things are subordinate to that main thing. Make disciples. Uh, this is written 
in the imperative mood, which means that it's imperative that you do this. It's written just linguistically as a command, right? Do this thing. And there are, other th- there are three other verbs subordinate to it. We're getting a little grammar lesson here this morning. There are three verbs that are subordinate to it as we are to Christ, right? So those three verbs are going, baptizing, and teaching. These are what are called participles or verbal nouns. They are the means by which the main command is done. How do you make disciples? By going, by baptizing, by teaching. That's how you make disciples. This is also mostly clear in the English with those ing endings, right? Uh, Baptizing them and teaching them. The go doesn't have the ing on it in the English, but that's okay because we understand this to be a means here. So if I were to tell you, go to the store and buy me a couch, you know that my primary desire was not that you go and experience the store, right? My main goal is that I end up with a couch, right? And therefore, the going is the means of the buying, right? And in this case, the going is the means of discipleship making. Go and make disciples. So it's not just that we go around, but that we're going and baptizing and teaching. So what is a disciple? A disciple who is, is someone who has been reached, baptized, and taught to observe everything Jesus commands and is indeed doing so and is, is indeed observing the commands of Jesus. So this is the Great Commission, to make disciples. So let's walk through that together a little bit here in the going and the baptizing and teaching. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Go, make disciples. By, let's start with going. Going perhaps needs the least explanation, but Paul explains this quite well. Uh, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Jesus is telling the disciples, the world is mine. So go where they are not worshiping and serving me and make disciples there. So God sends people into the world to preach the gospel that the many might be saved. This can't mean, however, that each individual Christian must be leaving where they are at all times, even based on the rest of the commandment, right? If you're a Christian in need of being taught, then you need to be where your teachers are. If you're to be teaching, then you must be uh, teaching people. You need to be where you're at. You need to be where you're baptizing people. You need to be. So the command to go, again, is subordinate to making disciples. It's not saying at all times, Spend a minute here and then go spend a minute there and then go spend a minute there. He's saying be locationally somewhere with the intent of making disciples there, right? That we as the body of Christ should fill the earth where, where a tongue or a nation or a tribe is, so is a body of Christians set on making disciples for their king. That's what we ought to be doing. And this means that regularly leaving the comforts of home for a land that is not yet subject to Christ will be a standard Christian operation. And you ought to be considering this as a Christian. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. 
So implied is that you, if you are currently in a place that is not subject to Christ, leaving there simply for the sake of leaving is to miss the point. Again, the point is not to acquire a couch, or the, the point is to acquire a couch, not to just be in the store, right? So we're out to be going and making disciples. The disciples weren't just given a general way of life, but a mission. Remember, we're talking about missions. Go and do this on purpose, and this is what your king commands you, to be making disciples. So our lot is not to just go around not cursing and waiting for people to ask us about why we're not cursing but to go and organize our lives around making disciples of all nations and using the gifts that God has given us to do so. That's what you ought to be doing. So you're in Bayfield right now. Are you here with the intent of making disciples? Are you here in Bayfield with that intent? Are you here because you have a good job and this is where you've always been? Those are good things. But that ought not to be the reason that you're here. The reason that you're here in Bayfield ought to be to make disciples. And if, you, and if you could be better making disciples elsewhere, if the Lord is calling you to make disciples elsewhere, then you, you better get up and go because that is your mission from your king. But if the Lord has sent you here to Bayfield with the purpose of making disciples, then be about that business. So that's going. So now let's look at baptizing, right? So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Also, interestingly enough, I came saying that I would be talking about church planting, right? We're, where, how are we getting to that? Uh, we're, we're about, this has all been, this is all part of the plan here. So just stay with me. Baptism, what is baptism? There is a lot to say about baptism. There is a ton to say about baptism. Uh, enough to spend an entire sermon series talking about baptism. So we're going to focus in on a few key elements here this morning. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, says, In him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Ah, it's all tied together. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We were buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. When Jesus says to go baptize, salvation is all included. Right? Go preach the gospel, watch people receive it with faith, baptize them, and watch them be raised to new life. Right? We're not just going around putting people under the water. Right? What that means, when he says baptize, it's a package deal. Right? You're, we're not going and tricking people into getting under the water. We're going and watching them be transformed by the gospel and being baptized in new life and raised to that new life. Go, he's saying, be the feet of those who good, bring good news. Remember, how are they to believe 
in him of whom they have never heard, and how will they hear without someone preaching? Go be the means by which God uses to bring saving faith to his people. That's what you're to do, is to go preach the gospel and watch people come into salvation and then baptize them. And that means that if you are not actively sharing the gospel, you are not doing anything that leads to baptism. And that means that you are not fulfilling the Great Commission. You're just not. If you are not proclaiming the gospel, you are not fulfilling the Great Commission. Now let's get tie things in and get a little more specific. What else is happening in baptism? Many things. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, or 12 through 28 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, says 1 Corinthians 12, for in one spirit we were all baptized into what? The one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And then he goes on in these next verses to talk about how you, you've heard this talked about, how the hand shouldn't be wishing that it was a foot and the eye shouldn't wish it was an ear, that we all are together members of one body, all using our gifts for the edification and the building up of the body of Jesus Christ. And down in verse 27, it says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping administrating and various kinds of tongues. Don't you guys have these gifts and aren't you using them to build up this body? We are baptized, it says in first Corinthians, into Christ. We are baptized into his body. We are individual members of his body. And God calls this body the church. God gives apostles, prophets, teachers to the church for its edification. And this church is not arbitrarily set up, but notice that God himself has appointed people and gifts to her, to this church. This gathering, which God makes appointments within, is what we are baptized into your baptism was not simply an individual event but it's an event that immerses you into jesus's death his resurrection and finally his body namely the church you are now part of a heavenly gathering and paul assumes that you are now part of the manifestation of that heavenly gathering which is a local gathering of spiritually gifted people who are all ministering towards one another namely the church and so therefore, baptism is biblically inseparable from the church. You can't just have baptism unrelated to the church. And so when Jesus said disciple making will involve baptizing, the church is absolutely implied. Jesus is saying, go into all the world and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit into Jesus' body that is the church. And at that time, he's talking to these 11 guys and he's saying, go and baptize them. There were not churches in all nations. So what would have to happen? How is this great commission going to be obeyed? By the planting, the nourishing, and the growing of local churches. This would have to happen. This commission could not be obeyed without this being done. And... How else do we know this? Because when the, the apostles heard this, they went out, and what did they do? They exactly started doing this. They exactly started going out, proclaiming the gospel, 
planting churches and putting everything in order because they saw that this was the way to be obedient to Jesus' command. That's why this church is here, because at some point, somebody started First Baptist Faith here out of obedience to the Great Commission. Go baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which brings them into the church, and then teach them everything I've said. Let's not, for a moment, let's take a second to not stray into error. In talking about the clear importance of the local church, we don't want to say that bringing people to church is a great substitute for preaching the gospel to them. That would be to err completely. Right? This is not what we're called to do. That is to miss the forest for the trees. That's to, to chop this up in a way that we are not proclaiming, that we are not preaching the gospel as we are called to do. We are called to proclaim the gospel, see people come to repentance and faith, and baptize them into the gathered body of Christ. And of course, while we're here, we're going to proclaim the gospel. But the church is, what the church is, is a, a body of Christ, of baptized believers, edifying one another to go out and proclaim the gospel and then baptize people into it. So do not confuse the two. Your job as a Christian isn't just to bring people to church, but your job as a Christian is to proclaim the gospel and see them baptized into the church. Does that make sense? Ephesians 4, and this bridges the gap between baptism and teaching that we're about to do. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to what? To equip the saints you, for the work of ministry. That's what we're doing. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is what the church is doing. And this brings us to our next point. And that is teaching, right? They're being equipped into full uh, maturity in Christ. Teaching, right? Because how do we make disciples? How do we make disciples? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to make disciples. How do we do it? By going, by baptizing, and then also by teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's what Jesus says. What are we supposed to teach them? We're supposed to teach them to observe what he commanded them. And we're supposed to teach them to observe all that he commanded them. This is what Jesus told these 11 men to do. And how does one teach all? Right, this is the command. We don't really get an option of not teaching all that Jesus commanded. That's, that's what he told us to do. When you are fulfilling the Great Commission personally, have you ever succeeded in teaching just one person to observe Jesus' command and to observe all that Jesus commanded? Have you ever succeeded in that in one person? You have children in your home. You have children in your home. You should be teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. But Jesus commanded, right, the, the Spirit of God wrote this book. The Spirit of Jesus Christ wrote this book. We're to teach people to observe everything that Jesus commands in his scripture. The Great Commission is to teach and to teach it all. 
And the Great Commission, do you see that it's not less than, but it's more than evangelizing? Remember, we reduced it earlier. Uh, isn't, the gospel, isn't the Great Commission just to teach, uh, preach the gospel? Isn't the Great Commission just to care for the poor? No, it's more than that. We must evangelize, but at the end of it, we ought to teach obedience until all people are taught to observe all the commands of Jesus. This is a lot. And this, therefore, is what the church is doing. Right, right now, the Great Commission is happening. I'm, I'm talking to Christians, right? I'm talking to Christians. Well, I'm talking to the church. And I'm, I'm teaching you right now to observe things that Jesus commanded. The Great Commission, as it turns out, is part of what Jesus commanded. And so right now, you are being taught to observe what Jesus commanded you to do. And therefore, the Great Commission is happening right now. And that's why this church functions in this way, where there's a pulpit here, and a pastor or a preacher comes up each week and unfolds the Word of God and teaches you to observe everything that God, uh, that Jesus commanded you. That means right now you are sitting in a discipleship program. We like to think of discipleship programs as, as pamphlets and people partnering off together, and that's what real discipleship is. But do you see what God is calling discipleship is baptizing and teaching to sit under the teaching of God's word. Do you want to be discipled? Then come here on Sunday morning and sit under the teaching of God's word. Be regularly fed and nourished and taught here on Sunday mornings. There are other regular ways that your church has established for you to come, right? You've got the home churches and the things like that. You've got ways that the church has already designed for you to come and sit under teaching. You've been baptized, haven't you? Then come and be discipled. Be taught. That's what being discipled is, to be taught to observe Jesus' commands. If you don't think you're being discipled well, ask yourself if you have fully taken advantage of the normative means of teaching that are here before you. Ask yourself that. Because you want to be built up in maturity. That's what you want. You'll be amazed at how well you grow under the constant, regular nourishment of God's word. Men, are you leading your families in teaching them regularly? You're called as husbands to wash your wife with the water of the word and to teach your children to observe the commands of Jesus. Are you doing that? And by regularly sitting under the teaching of God's word, just regular opening it up, reading it, and say, we should do this. Open it regularly. Read it. Say, let's do this. Sit under the teaching of God's word every Sunday and think, I'm going to obey these commands. And you will be discipled, and you will grow in maturity, and you're going to live less reactively, right? You're not ignoring these things, and then suddenly something comes up in your life. Your marriage is in trouble, right? Your kid is doing something that you weren't expecting. Some trouble befalls you at work. Some tragedy happens in your life, and you're like, I'm not prepared for this. And so you go, and you find a pastor, and you find an older person, you say, hey, help me. And of course... Emergencies happen, and we have to care for each other in emergencies, but you'll be better prepared for those emergencies, and you will have less emergencies if you are built up in maturity, if you are a man or a woman who has been steeped in God's word, and when these things happen, you think, I know exactly what to do, because I've read that. I've practiced that. This is a harder version of what I've been already doing, but I'm prepared for this because I've grown in this. This is what a disciple looks like, is somebody who's been nourished and taught by the word of God. So please come and don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together.
Don't forsake this and sit under it and it will nourish you and it will bring you into um, maturity in Christ. And this church is a means given for the extensive and careful teaching of all that Jesus commanded. Right? We have older, uh, actually Paul tells Titus, I'll just read it to you. It says, this is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you may put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town that I, as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, he goes in and talks about the qualifications of a godly elder, right? And then it says, towards the end, he says, it must hold firm to the trustworthy worthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The elders are given as people who are about teaching to observe all that Jesus commanded and rebuke things that contradict it. That's one of the primary jobs of a person given to the church for the sake of the Great Commission being fulfilled. Put things in order, he tells Titus, by appointing such men. The rightly ordered fulfillment of the Great Commission includes and necessitates churches with elders. And therefore you sitting under these elders and perhaps you growing into uh, an elder yourself. These elders serve to teach all that Jesus commanded and rebuke those who teach false things. And we also see here what Paul is saying is that there ought to be order in the churches. He says, put things in order, appoint elders, that a church has a good order and it should be followed. And this is a command of Jesus that we are to be observing. We see other instructions given elsewhere in scripture about deacons and the Lord's Supper and baptism and church discipline, etc., so in the church, we see teachers teaching the whole counsel of God, and we also see Paul gives instructions that older men are to teach younger men, and older women are to teach younger women. There's a lot, a big portion of what the church is, is teaching. And why is that? Well, it's because Jesus said to go out, to make disciples, to baptize them into the church, and then to teach them everything that I've commanded you. And so what's happening? What are the disciples told to do? They're to go out and make churches. Because this is the normal means that God gives in fulfilling what he has commanded. And so the apostles hearing this went out and proclaimed the gospel. They saw people saved. They baptized them. They put things in order. They appointed elders and deacons. They administered the Lord's Supper. They practiced church discipline. They encouraged people in their gifts. They rebuked their sin. They taught and watched people mature in Christ and praised God for it and always made mention of them in their prayers. They didn't just go out and evangelize individuals. And once they reached a certain number, move on to another town. They established churches, and God used this process to advance his kingdom deep and wide. That's what we're doing. This is the healthy way of making disciples. This is what you want to be about. Grounded, anchored, mature, and spreading over the whole earth, unstop uh, over the whole earth, unstoppable by the gates of hell. So are you going and baptizing and teaching? Are you locationally where you can be best used for the spread of God's kingdom? I'm just not really in a great season for that right now. I've got a lot going on. Well, repent. Repent of that. Make it your primary objective. Submit all schedules and locations to the marching orders of your king. And this will look like you using the gifts the Spirit gave you to proclaim the gospel to those unsaved around you, to teach those saved around you, and to build them up. And you're not alone. You're in the midst of God's body, his church. 
Are you proclaiming the explicit gospel to those you know? Or to those who you run into, are you proclaiming this message? Are you seeing them baptized into his body? This is what your king has commanded you, and therefore I'm instructed right now to teach you to observe it. So observe this. Do it. This is, this is the Christian life. And then also, in the midst of this, we see that God uses the local church as his regular means of this fulfillment. So are you supporting the church in its carrying out of the Great Commission? Are you giving of the tithes of your money? Are you giving service? Right? They, they say that 20% of people do 80% of the work. Where are you in that? Because this is what we're all doing. This is what we all ought to be about, is fulfilling this Great Commission. And this church is what God has given to best do that. And so are you doing that? Are you serving the body that you were baptized into with the gifts God has given you, eagerly and not out of compulsion? If not, repent. Today's the day. And do you see those around you serving and giving? Then encourage them, thank them, uplift them. They're supposed to do these things in secret, not drawing attention to them. So it's your job to draw attention to them, right? It's your job to exhort them and to encourage them and to bring light on those who are doing such things because they're not supposed to be doing that themselves. Let another's voice praise you. And so are you also supporting missionaries that are about this mission? Not, who call them, not all who call themselves missionaries are actually about the business of the Great Commission. They're not. And they might be doing good things, and we ought to be doing good things. We ought to be going about caring for orphans. We ought to be going about helping people in sex trafficking. We ought to be doing that, and we ought to be giving of ourselves to that. But is there a clear line between those things and this Great Commission that God has given us? Because it's not good enough to feed people. It's not good enough to save people. It's not good enough to, to care for people in their distress. The, their greatest distress is their sin. And their greatest problem is that they are not right with Almighty God. And Jesus Christ came and died and rose again that they might be saved everlasting. So are you putting your support behind missionary efforts of this kind? Are you contributing to the planting, growing, and nourishing of local churches. Finally, Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Remember that this is Jesus's kingdom we're talking about, and he's making it happen. Whether you're on board or not, it is happening. And Jesus cares more about its success than you do. So Jesus commands us to go, to baptize, and to teach and collectively, this looks like planting and growing and nourishing local churches. So do we just decide to make a church, right? So right now, we're in the midst, and the reason I'm here today and, and all this is going on and we're here in Missions Month, we're going out to plant a church. So do we just decide to make a church? Churches are a big deal. Hebrews says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. These churches are a big deal to Jesus. So how do we make one of these? Do we have the nerve to make one of these, to say, I'm going to just decide to make a church here? How do we make one of these? Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. 
Jesus also talks about the kingdom of God is like a man scattering seed on the ground and he sleeps and rises night and day and, he, and the seed sprouts and grows and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in its ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So Jesus is the one that's bringing the growth, right? Jesus is with us all the way through. That's what he says, behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. This is what he told his apostles. He's not asking us to do something that he's not even more invested in happening. And so how do we plant churches? Well, we seek his word. We see that he likes this to happen. We obey him in how we bring order to these gatherings, right? We look, okay, how does God want us to do things? Well, he, he likes elders. He likes deacons. He wants people to be baptized. He likes the, the Lord's Supper to be given, these sorts of things. And we commit them to him and watch him give the growth, right? We read out of Revelation chapter 1 this morning of seven lampstands in the heavenly places and these seven lampstands are seven churches and jesus is walking among the lampstands and he says uh and so there are lampstands in the heavenly places and that these are lampstands that he can remove unless people repent right so what's happening when a church is planted is that we are committing our ways to the lord we're saying you like to do this and jesus christ in the heavenly places is planting a lampstand He's the one that does it. He's the one that gives the fruit. All of it. We're just acting in obedience and, and praying that the Lord would do what he does. And God can chop it down when he sees fit, when the church proves unfaithful. And so we plant on the word of God and with prayer, obeying Jesus' commands and praying and offering these things to him and obeying his commands and regarding how the church should be organized, committing our ways to him that he might establish them and find us faithful. That's, that's what we do. That's how we plant local churches. And then we pastor them and we nourish them and we teach and we, and we put the work in and we watch the people all come together with their gifts, having been baptized, building up each other in love. And so I'd like to offer you an application of this passage. This is by no means the only way to apply it. You need to be in your church and building and growing this local church. You need to be out evangelizing and I'd like to give you an application of this. Uh, we are planting a church called New Covenant Church in the Denver metro area next May, Lord willing. The Denver area is a place that is 16% Protestant Christian. It's called post-Christian by most. It's a leader in our nation of heinous sin. Colorado is the first state to legalize abortion, for example. And though it is under Christ's authority, we do not yet see the city of Denver in subjection to Christ. There are faithful churches among the nearly 3 million people but they are few. We are going to go and encourage other churches in faithfulness while spreading the gospel and growing people in maturity so that we can send out more people to plant more churches and watch Colorado bow its knee to the rightful king. That's what we're out, out to do. We're here to partner with you, First Baptist Bayfield. We're going and we're baptizing and we're teaching. Because Denver is already under the rule and authority of Jesus Christ. We're not planting in Denver to win it for Christ. It's already been won by the death of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We're going to Denver as a city on a hill, one that will offer songs and prayers of praise to God, one that will teach his whole council, one that will baptize new members into his body and will teach them to observe the commands of Jesus, one that will feast on his blood and flesh until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And by his grace, this will also result in salvation for the lost and care for the poor and the orphan and the widow and close fellowship among the saints maturity in believers and so we're a small team right now we've got 
another couple. We've got another couple of guys coming with us, but we need people. We need older men and older women, as it's laid out in Titus, to teach the younger women and the younger men. We need elders and we need deacons. We need people with all sorts of spiritual gifts for the building up of the body. So please, this morning, this is not the only way to obey the commands laid out in Scripture, but please do consider coming with us. We need people. And if you know anybody in Denver or in that area, please connect them with us. We need people. The church is not just a bunch of floating individuals, but we need a body. So please consider coming with us. Really consider it. Denver is also an expensive place to live. And if we're to give ourselves fully to this mission, we need money. We need a place to live and food for our kids and income to support other missions and diaconal funds to care for those in our flock. So please consider supporting us until we can become financially self-sustaining in the next few years. And I would ask you, in so doing, that you would not take from the tithe that you're giving to this church, because this is the church that God has given you to be about. So if you're going to stay, continue tithing to your church, but this would just be additional generosity that we're asking for. And mostly we need prayer. Prayer is the means by which God accomplishes his purpose. And none of this can be done without prayer and the prayer of his people. But with prayer, we can thrive. His kingdom will come, and it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So please consider committing to regularly pray for us with your family, for New Covenant Church in the Denver area. And please think about how God would have you help this church send New Covenant Church into the city to spread Jesus' kingdom, to go, to baptize, to teach, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And whatever you do, whether your family is willing or able to support us in this endeavor or not, you must live your life in obedience to Jesus' great commission to see the local church as God's means for providing this, to do what God has given you to do to support this church and its mission, and also by yourself to go into the world and to preach the gospel and watch people be baptized and then to teach them to observe all that they command, to teach your children to obey Jesus' commands, to teach your coworkers. You can teach people who haven't been baptized to obey Jesus. They have to obey him anyway. Jesus died and rose and inherited a kingdom. And you yourself are a beneficiary of this kingdom. Freely you received, so freely give. Give your life by being where there is need, proclaiming to the gospel to those around you, watching them baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, into the church and sitting under the teaching, as you yourself also teach others that we may all serve Jesus Christ, who is worthy of it, having gained the world as a reward for his sufferings. And he, Jesus Christ, is with you to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for teaching us through it. God, equip us with what we need to obey you, to watch people be baptized and to teach them to observe all that you have commanded. Lord, send your spirit with power. Grant gifts to this church that they might use them for the spread of your kingdom because we want to see every knee bowing before the king. God, you died. Your son died for our sins. And you raised him from the dead. And therefore, all are his. And we don't want to see any nation not bowing their knee before him because he is worthy of all worship, Lord. And so, Lord, now meet with us in song.
and send us out into your world that Jesus might be magnified. In Jesus' name.